Hey everyone, it's Karen here, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Happy spooky season! And with Halloween on the horizon, we decided to bring you a very special treat, and we're holding the tricks. Today, we're having a working right now conversation with returning guest Isabella Connor. Isabella is a Massachusetts-based author and historian with a particular focus on New England during the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Isabella runs a website alongside Jacques Denault called jacquesandisabella.com and can be found on Instagram at Bella's Vignettes, where she frequently posts about New England history. Isabella, thank you so much for coming to join us today. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm so excited. Yeah, well, obviously, you popped to mind immediately when we first started kicking around the idea of doing a Working Right Now episode themed around Halloween and kind of the, the behemoth industry that it's become more than anything one might call a holiday. Uh, when you were with us, we talked about the Salem witch trials, um, and that was, that was really interesting from the point of view of the Puritan ministers. And we're just really excited to get your views on, on Halloween and, and honestly, just how it became what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's something working in Salem and with Salem history, and also at the same time being someone who just loves Halloween. It's, a, it's an interesting topic to discuss, both of them together, especially as someone who loves Salem and loves Halloween, um, but I'm not really a fan of the both of them together. And I don't know if that's that's common, uh, if that's a common feeling for people in my area in Salem. I think it'd be great to start by, um, if if you might, just discuss the origins of this pagan holiday in the U.S. Yeah, uh, Halloween um, has very ancient roots. Uh, it started as the festival of Samhain in um, Irish and Scottish tradition, um, and it's been celebrated. Samhain's been celebrated for uh, thousands of years by ancient um, Gaelic and Celtic cultures, and it really revolves around um, the time of the year that it's said that the veil between the worlds of the living and the dead is the thinnest. So there are all these traditions associated with Samhain that as it morphed over the years into um, first All Hallows Eve and then Halloween, once the um, uh, Christianity really took root in Ireland, um, even though it was linked to a different religion, uh, it maintained so many of the original um, folk practices and traditions. Um, It's really interesting when you look back at those um, folk pagan origins of Halloween to see how they still persist. And like I said, it originated as Samhain in Ireland. And in the late 19th and mid 19th through the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there was a huge um, influx of Irish immigrants coming to the United States because of the potato famine. So when these Irish immigrants came to the US, they brought their Halloween traditions with them. And I I won't say that Halloween was never celebrated in the United States before that, but I think 
it was celebrated, if it was celebrated, it would have been on an incredibly small scale by individual families within their homes. But once the tradition was really, um, really came to life in the United States through this, um, through these Irish immigrants coming to the U.S. That's really interesting to me to hear about this Irish origins for this pagan holiday. And, you know, this is a, a terrible sort of cultural blanket statement, but of course, Irish Catholicism is a well-known phrase for, for some, you know, documentable reasons. How would you square up that Irish Catholicism that is, is kind of an iconic concept with this embrace of the pagan holiday of Halloween? It's really interesting to think about it. And you see it with other holidays too. Like for example, Christmas um, is so rooted in these pagan traditions as well. And yet it's today associated as a religious um, Christian Catholic holiday, right? So it's, um, it's really interesting to think about this um, disconnect between the two. Uh, I think. Yeah. Like, and I mean, Christmas is, if anything, more of a commercial powerhouse, yeah. right? Uh, than, than Halloween. Yeah. It's a very interesting tension. I mean, I don't know. Is the answer that uh, Americans have to find a way to monetize everything? Or I don't know. I don't know what it means. I think it's a combination of, yeah, the you know, effects of capitalism. And at the same time, um, originally, I think the two really meshed together because. Um, as people were converting to a new religion, the only way they really were able to do that was morphing the traditions they already had into something new. And as far as you know, did the roots of this, this Solwyn celebration include feasting on special treats, you know, as we have kids going around trick-or-treating today, and of course, dressing up in costume? Yeah, uh, you see... Um, people dressing up in costumes. Um, I'm not really sure if how much of it that originated with the original um, Samhain festival, but um, throughout you you see that throughout the medieval medieval period of people dressing up, um, and you see the jack o' lanterns. Although they're different originally, um, jack o' lanterns originated with Samhain um, as turnips instead of pumpkins. Uh, oh, that would be hard to carve. Yeah, and they would have to, you know, hollow out the turnip. Sometimes they'd have to cut off the bottom to make it flat to stand upright. Um, of course, coming to the United States, there are is a surplus of pumpkins, um, which is already partially hollow. You just have to take out the guts and the seeds, and then they stand up. So um, that's how you know jack o' lanterns evolved into what we do today. Uh, in the trick or treating. Um, there is a period where it was called souling um, for All Souls Day, which was another variation of the Halloween celebration. Now that's November 1st, right? I believe so. I believe. Um, yeah. Like connected with the pagan yeah. holiday, which is yeah, so convenient, like right? Yeah. <laughs> we'll give you another holiday. <laughs> yeah. Um, but during souling, it was essentially trick-or-treating or a little, a little more similar to wassailing. Um, like during Christmas um, or um, caroling where people would get dressed up and it was the peasants would get dressed up and go to the richer people's homes asking for, um, originally it was probably just bread and 
and something to eat. But then it evolved into treats. They had um, a specific soul cake that was for um, souling, which was a little, you know, semi-sweet biscuit that had a couple spices in it, kind of like a little cookie um, that was really popular. So uh, you really see a lot of that starting early on and then continuing and evolving into what we see today. And so when when did this great commercialization begin in all its crazy, sticky, sweet glory? You know, um, bags and bags and bags of, of mini size candies and costumes that were, you know, very cheaply made and, and jacked up the price. You know, I, I remember I begged my mom. I always wanted one of those costumes that were ubiquitous in the U.S. At one point, they, they came in stacked boxes and they had a, a clear plastic cover on the lid and you could see what was usually a very scary, but again, cheap plastic mask <laughs> under it. You know, when, when did that really become such big business? Yeah, that started... Um, more towards the beginning of the 20th century, although you started to see the roots of it forming in the late 19th century. Um, in the late 19th century, it was mostly people were still making homemade costumes. And I don't know if you've ever seen any of these pictures or postcards from that era of children in these horrifying looking homemade costumes with these terrible, scary paper mache masks that just- Oh, I probably was sent out in one of those most years. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm not that old. <laughs> but it uh, slowly began to evolve from those homemade costumes into these mass market, mass produced costumes that looked very similar to the homemade costumes in scariness level, but um, people could just go out and buy. And around the same time, you start to see um, these big companies manufacturing candy. Beforehand, it would have just been homemade treats, new cookies, things like that. But um, during this time period, you start to see the manufacturing of, of candy. It's when a candy corner was invented, which we still have today. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Hershey's Chocolate, the company uh, started around that time period. So uh, that's the really the, the early 20th centuries when you really see the commercialism starting um, to take hold. And how does Salem play into this story of, of popularity and commercialization that, that seems to have really picked up and grown in the course of the 20th century? You know, there's not one direct answer, but there are all these uh, events that coincided kind of perfectly to create over time the Salem in October that we have today. Um, Salem, as we know, Salem had the Salem witch trials in 1692. Salem, the city back then, which I talk a little bit about in our, our last podcast episode, um, was then Salem Town, and then Salem Village was the current town of Danvers. And most of the events of the witch trials actually happened in modern-day Danvers. So Salem the city was much more affluent, and as a result, um, the city really didn't have as much trouble recovering from the events of the witch trials as, for example, the town of Danvers did. And Salem, following the witch trials, ended up becoming one of the most prominent and important um, maritime cities in the entire world. Um, throughout the 18th century, if anybody mentioned Salem, they would be thinking, oh, it's that super wealthy maritime city. 
They um, wouldn't think witches immediately, like we tend to say. They would not think witches. Interesting. Well, it wasn't a very big population. I mean, I'm sure it was, you know, terrible and terrifying as we, as you say, we discussed in the podcast episode, but amazing how that's become kind of the alter ego of Salem, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it, it turns itself around. And I mean, in the 18th century, America's first millionaire was Elias Haskett Derby, who was a merchant in Salem. He lived and worked in Salem. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. And there are all these huge, beautiful federal style um, buildings in Salem, these mansions that were the result of that maritime trade. <coughs> so Salem did incredibly well for itself throughout the 18th century and especially during the American Revolution. Um, there were privateers in Salem that were very influential. And really, once Salem's maritime trade died down, which was right after the War of 1812, there were a lot of shipping embargoes um, and taxes and things like that that led to Salem's downfall as a maritime city. And eventually, the uh, maritime capital was moved to Boston instead of Salem. So Salem was really, really struggling following that. By the 1830s, the maritime trade in Salem was really, really um, on a downward spiral. So Salem needed a new industry. What they ended up going to at first was um, the leather, leather industry. Um, there are a lot of leather workers in Salem. By the North River, there were all these leather working buildings. But in 1914, uh, one of those leather buildings had a explosion with the fire um, because of all the chemicals that were in these buildings that were used in the leather working. And that fire spread, spread throughout Salem. And I believe it was something around a little over 1300 buildings were destroyed during that fire. Oh, 14. Uh, ironically, the fire started at a building that was right next door to the site of the hangings during the witch trials. So, of course, there's all this folklore associated with it. Oh, no doubt. Oh, wow. <laughs> then the witches popped mind. They had to have yeah. a scapegoat. So this was in 1914, early 20th century. And all these people involved in this were out of homes and jobs. This also that happened- probably made the leather industry rather less popular in town after that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all these buildings were gone and people that after that knew how dangerous it was. So uh, all these people were looking for new jobs. And this just so coincides with Halloween becoming hugely popular in the United States. Oh, wow. So a perfect opportunity. They thought we, we are- Halloween's hometown. In the years directly before this, you know, about 10, 20 years span before this, that Salem has slowly, very, very slowly started to become, to become known as the quote, witch city. Uh, and it happens over time, you know, kind of trickling in here and there. Uh, in 1891, there's this, um, there was this, uh, silver manufacturer in, in Salem called Daniel Lowe and Company. And they were the first um, jewelry uh, mail order catalog in the United States. Um, Daniel Lowe decided to make this 
Salem souvenir spoon. It was this um, sterling silver spoon. It was called the witch spoon. And it had a little, you know, stereotypical witch on the handle and it said Salem on it. And that's what most people consider to be the first Salem witch souvenir. So that was in 1891. The following year, it ended up being the 200th anniversary of when the Salem witch trials occurred. So he ah, re-released the witch spoon. Perfect opportunity to remince. Yep. He re-released it, more intricate design, um, and it was super popular. I mean, you can still find those on eBay, like listed online today um, from all over the country and all over the world, people selling them because it was also mail order. So people could order it from wherever in the country. Uh, and this is also an uptick of tourism. I mean, this is when the uh, railroad is really taking off. People are traveling for leisure for, you know, at least it's more widespread people traveling for leisure, especially among, you know, people below the wealthy upper class. So people are visiting Salem and it's slowly starting to become the, you know, witch city in quotes. Um, and of course that coincides with when Salem really is looking to get people working and get jobs. So it's kind of a perfect storm. I mean, it yeah. makes absolute sense. They, they were pretty savvy if you ask me. Mm -hmm. And so this is an industry that you're intimately familiar with, um, you know, both as uh, somebody who has worked as a, you worked as a tour guide, right? For certain attractions yeah. in yeah. Salem um, and, and more on the historical end of things. Although I, I know from having been there, it, it runs the gamut from kind of very strict historically oriented to, to pretty um, lurid uh, sensationalism. But you also, uh, you live there too, right? You're I don't live directly in Salem, but I do live nearby and am there enough that it feels like I live there. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So maybe you can just, you know, give us a little bit of a view from the front lines of this cultural and economic phenomenon, such as it is nowadays. It really became a beast of its own over time. Like I said, there were the very slow origins of it happening. Um, and it's been going on the development of Salem becoming this Halloween, the unofficial Halloween capital um, for many, many years, you know, uh, you know, a hundred plus years by now, but it really started to become closer to what it is nowadays in the eighties when the first haunting, haunted the 1980s. So, yeah, so really sorry. recently, honestly. Yeah. That was the first haunted happenings. You know, every, every October Salem has haunted happenings where there are all these events and there's the parade. Originally it was just the parade. That was all, but now there are, all these events surrounding, surrounding haunted happenings in Salem in October. And it's really, uh, it's been really interesting to see even since I was a kid and in the years since I've been directly involved in working in Salem, how much it's changed. But this year, it's crazier than ever um, with all the crowds visiting. Everyone's just excited to be out of lockdown, yeah. right? When I started as a tour guide, it was always very um, frustrating to me, you know, as you, as a historian, even then before I was, you know, fully fledged historian, I was just a little baby historian in training. And <laughs> that's genuine. That's the real deal. Um, but even then it was very frustrating because I mean, the, the site I worked at 
Um, it was built prior to the Salem Witch Trials. It was built in 1668, um, but it really didn't have very, very many connections to the witch trials. I mean, no one who lived there was accused of witchcraft, was involved in the trials directly. Um, and, you know, they were living there at the time, so they were, you know, involved in the community, but they weren't any of the accusers or accused or anything like that. So we didn't talk that much about the witch trials at the site. But, you know, people would come up to me and, and people would ask, you know, honestly, very inappropriate questions, you know, they would, or inappropriate the way they phrased their questions, you know, they'd say things like, oh, can you tell me where the witches were burned? You know, first of all, just very insensitive way of framing that. Um, second of all, you know, there were no actual witches here. People, people were accused of witchcraft, but nobody executed was a witch. And they weren't burned. They were hanged. Oh, no. It's like, where do you begin with this? Some tourists who come are great and they're really interested in the history. Um, some people don't know anything about it and are surprised at what they learn. And some people just don't want to hear it. Uh, so it's been nice to see more people in the Salem community getting involved in trying to create um, more of an educational experience for people visiting. Yeah, like, absolutely. Um, when I first started, it was really hard to find a tour guide giving a walking tour of the city that was in any way accurate. Now, luckily, there are more tour walking tours that are run by historians and by museums and by just you know, generally tour guides who care about the history and want to portray it accurately. And that's really, really nice to see um, as a change. I mean, there's a new welcome center um, at the uh, Witch Trials Memorial. So there was a problem for years. Um, the Witch Trials Memorial, it's set up so that um, there are names of the victims and they're above the ground. Um, and it kind of looks like a bench. Um, and people would just be sitting on, on it. And then it's like, no, that's a mm. memorial. Don't sit on that. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so luckily there's a welcome center right next to it now. And there are people working there that make sure that doesn't, that doesn't happen. In your work as an historian and a tour guide in Salem, do you see a real blurring between Halloween as an event, which has sort of expanded in many different directions, mostly along the recreational and the, the real history of Salem uh, insofar as the, the witch trials are concerned? In some ways, as long as people understand that that's not like the true history, it's not quite a problem. I mean, you know, movies like Hocus Pocus, they're fun, you know, as long as people don't think it's real. So I definitely think that um, the, the lines have been blurred and, and I mean, people wanting to visit Salem in October, um, I in no way have a problem with that. It's just my my concern is when it becomes a parody of itself. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think listening to you, it it just image just makes me me think it's a real danger that Salem's booming tourism industry could ultimately cheapen its mm -hmm. dark history, and and it also feels. I mean, it's it feels slightly, uh, you know, I, ironic in in the real sense of the word, as opposed to the hipster sense of the word. In that, you know, it it was not really something to celebrate. <laughs> you know, it was a, a really awful experience, not just for the victims and their families, but for the entire colony and for some time afterwards. You know, I, you know, I was talking about some of these 
not non-factual um, tours that are available to be taken in Salem. Um, and a key word that a lot of these, um, these tour guides use is this martyr, a martyrdom of, of the people who were executed during the witch trials. And I mean, that word I have a problem with in this case because I mean, these people, they, they weren't martyrs for witchcraft. They were just Puritan, pe average Puritan people. Yeah, they weren't witches. They were not <laughs> witches, especially the people who were executed. The reason they were executed, which you know, we talk about in the last podcast episode we did together, is that they wouldn't confess to witchcraft. They wouldn't confess to things that they didn't do. So. I guess in a way you could say they were martyrs for their Puritan faith, but they certainly were not martyrs for witchcraft. Exactly. And, and so, and this, this, this brings me to my next question, which I have to say, I always am kind of amazed at the way in which modern pagans who embrace certain elements of witchcraft, I'm not going to pretend to be knowledge enough to use, knowledgeable enough to use all the correct words, but there's... It, it feels almost like a cultural appropriation of sorts that they're adopting Salem as a place for them and their beliefs when, you know, that that's really a new phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah, um, witchcraft as a modern practice uh, is fairly new. Um, and in some ways, I do think it is, uh, I do think it's really beautiful that um, people who practice modern pagan religions, um, witchcraft in its various forms and religions, um, find Salem to be a safe place to do so. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important to acknowledge that the people who died during the Salem witch trials were not witches. Um, so in a way, it's a reclamation of this is a place where you know, these beliefs were illegal and ostracized for so long um, to be able to practice that in that place, but at the same time acknowledging that the people who died did not share that belief with you. No, I mean, it's a really interesting thing. And I, I suppose it, it, um, putting that positive spin on it, you know, it is a beautiful thing. And I, I, I suppose there's something to be said for allying oneself with with those who in the past were persecuted for being thought to participate in, in a belief system that's very important to them now. Yeah, I mean, Salem, Salem is such a, it's an interesting place because um, it's a, you know, a very liberal and accepting community today, um, which is the complete opposite of what it was in the 1600s. <laughs> Salem actually gets very into Christmas, but it's only the, the locals who go to that stuff. So, you know, Salem has all the stuff around Christmas and these beautiful Christmas lights. And it's, you know, Christmas time in Salem is actually one of my favorite times of the year in Salem because it's very, very quiet. Everyone's moved on. <laughs> well, take your, take your blessings where you can find them, your Christmas blessings of peace. That's the, the tone of the season. Well, Isabella, can I ask you a very important question? Yes. <laughs> What is your favorite Halloween candy? Oh, I don't know. It's a good question. Um, I love chocolate things. Um, I actually had candy corn for the first time this year. 
the first time ever, the first time ever I had to make it myself, um, because I have, I have nut allergies. So, uh, candy corn, for some reason, it is always made in a facility that processes nuts on the same equipment. So I could never have it. Everything. Oh, well, what did you (laughs) think? So I made it and, um, I thought it was really good. And I had my family members who have had the real candy corn taste it. And they're like, this tastes just like it, except better and minus the artificial flavor. Oh, you'll have to send me your recipe because we can't (laughs) buy candy corn in the UK. I actually bought some when I was back briefly in August and I had hoarded it and I just pulled it out for my kids and dispensed it. And of course it's already gone. I, I thought it was close enough to Halloween. It might last, but um, I, I love the pumpkins too. The big, yeah, I made those too. I made them with <laughs> just like the same recipe. I made them in different shapes. It was fun. It oh. was kind of like molding Play-Doh at the end. When I was a little kid, I loved Swedish fish, but I'm not as big a fan nowadays. I love Swedish fish. I don't feel like I was ever lucky enough to get those in a Halloween bag, but the mini chocolate bars were, were great. You know, that, that sort of felt like high, high quality. It was awful when somebody slipped an apple or, or, you know, something like a toothbrush, God forbid, that was just cruel. I always thought it was ironic how the little candy candy bars are called fun-sized. And it was always like, wouldn't fun-sized mean it was huge? Well, speaking of fun-sized, Isabella, I I think that this is about a wrap on our fun-sized episode. Um, But, you know, sometimes I think um, beautiful things come in small packages, which I I guess is what the candy companies are trying to tell us with those (laughs) little mini mini bars that that are all the rage. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk to us about this today. And, you know, obviously when we're thinking about a, a holiday themed episode and wanted to do a working right now, there was only one person that came to mind and that was you to share your really up close and personal insights with the Association of Witches and Halloween in Salem. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Hey, time traveler. For show updates and additional content, follow us on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries and visit WorkingOvertimePodcast.com. As always, thanks for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.